Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. First up, a confession. This podcast is actually paid for by a consortium of the Knights Templar and Lizards from Outer Space. Our job is to change the mindset of you, our listeners, by overwhelming you with tendentious historical parallels, thereby softening you up for a global takeover led by George Soros and Elvis. Actually, uh, Dominic Sandbrook, my co-conspirator with me here... (laughs) That's not actually true, is it? That's nonsense. Well, some of it's true. <laughs> the tendentious historical parallels, that's true enough. Yes, that, that, that is actually true. I mean, maybe if we encouraged a few influencers on social media to suggest that this is in fact the case, how long before some people actually believed it to be true, do you think? Well, that's a good I mean, the thought that we could influence anybody um, is frankly beyond the, the realms of the imagination. <laughs> but um, yes, so today we thought we would do conspiracy theories. What a, and, and a great subject to me. I had an amazing response on, on Twitter when we put this out, which just shows the, the appetite that people have for believing that, you know, tiny groups of, of um, highly influential people like Tom and me control the world. So we're obviously JFK, the Templars, the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the Popish Plot, you know, was Barack Obama actually a, a Russian sleeper agent born in Kenya? Um, I mean, the statistics, Tom, are amazing. So to kick off, a recent poll by NPR, the American National Public Radio, asked Americans if they believe that a group of Satan-worshipping elites who run a child sex ring are, con- are trying to control our politics and media. So that's the allegation at the heart of QAnon. And 17%, 17% said it was true that they, they thought these Satan-worshipping elites were trying to control the media, and 37% said they didn't know. So in other words, you've got more than half who either believe it or are sort of ambivalent. Um, that's extraordinary, isn't it? And, and, but not unprecedented. I think that's the interesting thing. Not unprecedented, and you can see um, the way that conspiracy theories take root at the moment with the, the rollout of vaccines. And obviously, there are all kinds of um, conspiracy theories about vaccines. So there's the uh, idea that COVID-19 vaccines will alter our DNA, that they're going to implant microchips into people. Yeah. 
that volunteers in the trials died and it's being covered up, um, that Bill Gates is somehow involved, that um, vaccines for the Spanish flu were responsible for the 50 million deaths. Um, and this has a, a, an actual knock-on effect because I think in, in, in France, I think over 50% of people are yeah. saying that, they're, that they don't want to take the vaccine. So, yeah, I've seen uh, that. That's not that's good news at all. For, yeah. So, so, so I think, I mean, the key thing about this episode is not just to look at, you know, conspiracy theories in and of themselves, but to explore the way in which they hold a mirror up to the times and also the way that they have actually influenced the course of, of events and, and often the broad sweep of history. I think it's a, yeah. a very, very fertile idea uh, i mean dominic you um you you write mainly about um the modern period and and you've particularly uh, you know your early field of study was nixon yeah i guess what's interesting about nixon you know he's brought down by watergate and watergate actually i mean that's a conspiracy that turns out to be true isn't it it is uh, the, the fascinating thing about watergate is that it's well it's like all these things it's um it's really a saga of incompetence rather than rather than sort of um, an elite that's controlling everything. So in Watergate, for people who don't remember, the Nixon campaign, the re-election campaign, they tried, they bugged their um, they bugged their opposition, the Democrats, uh, but in a very incompetent way. Um, they broke into the Watergate building and they tried to plant wiretaps, and it all came out. And, and the interesting thing about that, Tom, which bears out what you were saying earlier on, is that the reason they did it is because Nixon himself was a conspiracy theorist. So Nixon believed that there was a conspiracy out to get him. He had always believed it. He believed that the Kennedys, that people who'd gone to Harvard, that the big north, sort of northeastern intellectual political establishment were plotting against him, that they were bugging him. And he, he constantly said to his aides, we have to do to them what they're doing to us. So he basically orchestrates this conspiracy because he thinks he needs to tool up to fight the existing conspiracy against him, which, you know, didn't really exist. And he is operating against the, the, the paranoid style in American politics. Yeah. So two, I mean, two massive conspiracy theories that are presumably floating around um, while Nixon is president. Who shot JFK? Is, yeah. is the whopper. And I think already, um, by the time of Nixon's presidency, you know, the, the years that immediately followed the moon landings, already people are starting to speculate that that is, is a fake as well. Yeah, I think the JFK one is the bigger one. So the moon landings is a, is a, a mad one that I think um, gains traction slightly later. The JFK one, though, I mean, the JFK one is a classic one because it's that classic instance of people taking a a seismic event that seems to come out of the blue. And, I mean, one of the, the... We'll talk about this, no doubt, but one of the perennial appeals of conspiracy theory is that it allows people to explain the, the inexplicable. So the president was shot, apparently, by a lone gunman, but, but people find that hard to handle. They don't like the idea that, of the random, the contingent element in history. And so they try to fit it into the, these sort of existing, as you say, the paranoid style in America which is, if you think about America, America was set up as a, as a rebellion against an, you know, a, a, an out-of-touch elite on the other side of the Atlantic. But also America is set up as a sort of Puritan um, shining city on a hill surrounded by corruption. So there's always this sense of sort of being embattled and, and sort of shadowy forces moving against the American Republic. And the people tried to fit the JFK assassination into that. They said, well, it must be the CIA or the mafia or the you know, the Cubans or whoever it might be. 
Um, and they do the same with Watergate and then with the moon landings as well. So that's definitely an American tradition, that kind of what Richard Hofstadter called the paranoid style. Well, I, it's it's a very unfair question, but I just wanted to ask you, as someone who really knows his, his modern American history, who do you think killed JFK? <laughs> was behind, but who, who, who shot JFK? Uh, I mean, was it just the random gunman? The answer is so blindingly obvious. It's obviously Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> and, and the... the <laughs> The the key thing but he wasn't know, brainwashed right? by the Russians or the mafia or uh, he wasn't Tom and I always think the, the giveaway the single fact that showed that 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 the conspiracy theorists never address is the fact that if you employed Lee Harvey Oswald even as your patsy, um, why would you not provide him with a getaway car? Why would you allow him to roam the streets after because shooting? That's what they want. That's precisely the fiendish coming of it. He shoots a policeman, the fiendish cunning. I mean, come on. Um, you know, and he was brainwashed by the KGB. I mean, you know, so anyway. Yes. But, but and you're, you're right, aren't you? That, of course, it provides a kind of reassurance. I mean, that's that's the unspoken truth about conspiracy yeah, theories, of is that it enables people to think that even though they may be kind of bloodsucking lizards behind it, at least that gives you some reassurance that people know what they're doing, even right, if it's for the exactly. most malign purposes. But also makes you feel good, right? Because you've seen through it. So you're one of the yes. forces of light and you're part of the resistance. You have seen through yes. the, the evil plan. So that gives you a bit of an advantage. You're surrounded by the sheep who haven't. And that's much more comforting than thinking you live in an entirely random world where a big you know, stone block might fall on your head at any moment and kill you and it has no meaning. I think that's the terrifying thing, isn't it, for people... The lack of me- if there must be a meaning in history, and conspiracy theories provide one. And what they also can do, of course, is provide a political weapon. Because yeah. if you can accuse your enemies of being embroiled in a conspiracy, and then you cast yourself as the person who has exposed that conspiracy, then you become the hero of the hour. And you, will I can make- see where this is going with Tom. <laughs> yes, but I, I have. So we're seamlessly moving from uh, 1960s America to uh, 60s BC Rome. Very uh, nice. With really the, 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 the granddaddy of um, all conspiracy theories, which is um, the Catilinarian conspiracy, a conspiracy conducted by a, a shady Roman aristocrat called Catiline, supposedly, who was going to take over Rome, um, employ gangs of Gauls to uh, murder his enemies in the Senate. And this is exposed by the great orator Cicero, whose speeches um, provide a, a template for political rhetoric that people have studied um, essentially ever since. And floating around Cicero's exposure of this um, Catalinarian conspiracy has always been, right from the very time that he gave these speeches, the dark suspicion that perhaps Cicero was overegging it. And it's still a problem today to, to, to work that out because, of course, people not we only know. have Cicero's accounts. Okay. So we don't have, you know, we, we don't have any counterblast from Catiline. So we only have we only have Cicero's speeches. And in a sense, that provides the template because, precisely because Cicero's speeches are so influential. They kind of provide a model of how to write Latin. So throughout the 16th and then into the 17th century, this is being studied. And I guess that then has an impact on the readiness of people, say, in, in, in 17th century England, to suspect dark conspiracies, which has... And the obvious, I suppose, the kind of glaring example of that is the, the Popish plot. Yeah, the Popish plot's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Um, I mean, obviously, that was an age, 17th century is an age rich with conspiracies. I mean, we talked about the 17th century a few weeks ago. But the Popish plot is the, the granddaddy, because in a way, it's the foundation of British, of, you know, British politics. So, and, and this, so just 
the listeners, that's um, the end of Charles II's reign. And it, yes. as you say, it comes against a background, actually, of, of course, of conspiracies that are proven to be true, but which Guy Fawkes... Um, yeah, Guy Fawkes is know, the classic one, isn't it? Yeah, is the classic one. So, so you, you, you know that actually conspiracies are possible. Yeah, and Titus Oates, who is this Catholic fellow... Um, who says he has inside knowledge. He has been to training schools. He has mixed with Jesuits. He's been on the continent. So then he's recanted. He's come back to England and he says, I know. And he has all these details. He appears to have all these details. He says, you know, and this is always the way that with conspiracy theories, that they have an inside man who has since repented, who returns and says, well, you know, I've seen the light. I was a sinner but I now know all the ins and outs of the conspiracy. I mean, this is how, you know, anti-communism in 1950s America often worked. McCarthyism, people would say, I was a communist in the 30s. I know how evil they are. And I know that all university professors are communists. Well, this is sort of how Titus Oates works. He says, I have this tremendous amount of knowledge. I know there's a plot to kill the king. Um, Catholics are poised any moment to rise up over England um, the Jesuits have been plotting the whole thing and it falls on very fertile ground. And because he seems to have this level of expertise, this inside knowledge, people believe it. And then there's this, he says, um, uh, James, Duke of York, who is a Catholic, who is Charles II's brother and heir. He says they're going to put him on the throne, make him king. He's a Catholic. And you have the, that that cr- creates this sort of big political crisis where you have the Tories and the Whigs, um, the Whigs who want to kick James out of the line of succession, the Tories who want to keep him. So in a sense, you can trace all British politics back to the, I mean, it's slightly sort of tangentious, but you can trace it all back to the to the sort of paranoia of the Popish plot. But I mean, it gets exposed, doesn't it? I mean, he, Charles II never really believes it. And in due course, uh, I mean, Titus Oates is, is condemned as a fraud. He's made to stand on the pillory every year. That's right. Through the streets. But the, the effects of it linger. I mean, I think... Um, it's it's during this period, during the kind of scare that Titus Oates has whipped up, that Catholics get banned from both the Houses of Parliament. And that's something that lasts right the way up to the early 19th century. So th- this has measurable effects. Oh, it did. Charles didn't really believe it. He asked, you know, people asked, sometimes asked Oates questions that he got wrong. And Charles kind of knew he hadn't been in such and such a place at such and such a time. And he could, he could spot some of the 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 mistakes but he's in a, he was in a difficult he wasn't in a really a position to to exp, to sort of expose it straight away and it actually took a long as you say it, it did get exposed but it, it took a, a few years and it also as you say had measurable effects so yeah conspiracy theories really matter i mean the the fact that all politics in britain you can argue st- stems from a conspiracy theory tells you i think something about politics as well that there's always an element of conspiracy theory in politics. No yes. matter how democratic yeah. and and sane, there's always this... Don't you think that people always are talking about yeah. elites and corruption and shadowy networks? That I mean, you've seen this so much recently. Well, I, yes, I mean, I suppose at, essentially at an election, what the electorate is being asked to decide is which, which shadowy organisation do you want to get rid of? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> essentially that's what it comes down to you 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 know you decide to vote for one party or the other based on on your conviction that 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 when one party says the other party will ruin the country that's right yeah yeah Um, you're basically buying to a narrative don't you the two part the two main parties give you 
a narrative in which they are the representatives of the people and the other guys are the cruel, malevolent, um, callous elite who are plotting with their friends in the media to destroy Britain. I mean, you see this, my God, you've seen this so much in the last 10 years. Well, yes, absolutely, with Brexit, absolutely. Um, Both sides completely kind of manufacturing the notion that their enemies are ranked in shadowy lines of conspiracies and and funded by foreign governments and all kinds. Yes, I mean, complete. And I guess that that a a further corollary of that is um, something that is made play with in, I guess, the great novel about conspiracy theories, Foucault's Pendulum by... Um, oh, yeah. Alberto Echo, which essentially takes every great conspiracy theory in history, so the Knights Templar and the Rosicrucians and everybody, and bundles it up into one super conspiracy theory, just for fun, really. I mean, it's a kind of a, a group of professors who, who do it, and journalists, and then they discover that they've actually, they've, that, that what they've created as a fantasy comes true. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's so interesting because you do see that again and again through history, um, that People project fears onto their enemies and it can happen that their enemies will ultimately take on the lineaments of what is being projected onto them. Well, that's and, the Watergate example, isn't it? You know, people project yes, thoughts. Yes, yes. But I, I mean, I, th- I think the, the, the most fascinating example of that is with the Albigensian Crusade in okay. the early 13th century, which we would now tend to call the Cathars, although the word Cathars is only applied to the Albigensians in the late 19th century, which shows how long these conspiracy theories take to work out. But essentially, the idea is that, uh, and again, Foucault's pendulum makes play with this, that there is, uh, in the south of France, there is a shadowy heretical church, which is modelled on the Catholic church, um, and it is a dualist, so it believes that there are, you know, there is a, a, a God who is good and there is a God who is evil and they have rival powers, equal powers. Um, and the Albigensian Crusade is launched to extirpate, supposedly, this fantastical church that exists. And it brings devastation and bloodshed kind of beyond compare into the heart of, of this rich civilization of southern France it essentially turbocharges the Inquisition. It um, establishes a template for heresy that runs throughout medieval history. And yet, as far as we can tell, actually, this idea of the shadowy church did not, you know, it, it was a fantasy. It was made up. And the potency of conspiracy theories to change the course of history is so dramatically illustrated by that, not least in the way that people still tend to think that, you know, that there were such things as Cathars. So the Cathars didn't exist that's what you're basically saying. No, uh, that th- there were people who who held um, attitudes towards their Christian faith that had been yeah. absolutely orthodox a couple of centuries before. Are they not bogomils, Tom? No, they're not. Uh, oh, this is very are... disappointing. Uh, no, <laughs> this is no. So, 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 all of those figures, um, kind of the the idea that there are shadowy networks of of heretics conspiring and and uh, meeting up and spreading their conspiracy across Europe, is yeah. completely. It's a complete fantasy oh, of the terrible. church. But basically, what they're dealing with with, with Albigensians is the equivalent of deplorables. It's people who've been left behind by the way that in elite circles in the church. Uh, orthodox notions of orthodoxy notions of what is right and wrong has developed and so essentially they're going in to wipe out people who know lo- who, who who are clinging to outdated right. understanding of what christianity is but it, it's it, it's but it's so appealing that it continues to structure novels and yeah um, 
films and and, but, and entire, in fact the entire tourist industry of I was just about to say two years ago I went we went to the long dock on holiday and we went to all the Cathar castles I mean the one that sticks in my mind is one they've got a huge exhibition about the last Cathar who was a man called Bellybast very un- slightly unfortunate name I think for somebody with such a, a sort of heroic sort of martyrdom role in history and they had all this stuff about the Cathars and you're telling me that the long dock tourist board is peddling a lie. I think they're peddling a, a, a fantasy. Which oh, is qu- it's quite a lucrative fantasy. We're losing um, listeners in Long Dot by the, you know, by the thousand. And which, of course, uh, does have elements of truth. I mean, as we've said, conspiracy theories yeah. have to weave in things that people kind of know is true. But also, I think what's fascinating about that, when the Inquisition start to move in and they start to interrogate um, people that they're accusing of this heresy, people who are accused of it start to say, OK, yeah... All right, yes, I am guilty of it. And so that's interesting. That's kind of how it works. So they're sort of imposing a, a pattern. So that's actually not unlike this is a very weird comparison. But that's a this is a the, what that reminds me of is after the, the Ottoman Empire fell apart and people would go around the Balkans and they would say to people, Are you a Bulgarian, a Macedonian, a Serbian, or whatever? And people often didn't know, they didn't have an answer. And they would sort of impose an identity on them, which people basically put up with because they'd be shot if they didn't. And then they became those things. So you're basically, and that's often how these things work, isn't it? That people project an identity onto something, they project a pattern, and then people end up living up to it. So people imposed the sort of Catharism model on the southwest of France, and now the southwest of France happily embraces it. So people buying into conspiracy theories, becoming um, the very conspiracy that that people dread. Well, uh, a thrilling note, I think, on which to just have a short pause. Um, while Dominic and I recalibrate the mini cameras on your phones and the microchips in your blood. We'll be back after this break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to The Rest is History, the podcast paid for by a shadowy cabal committed to bringing about who knows what terrible events, or indeed not. Now, the topic of conspiracy theories is obviously one that um, people are incredibly interested in because you've sent us a vast number of tweets um, when we uh, mentioned on Twitter the subject for this podcast. So um, let's take a look at just a few of them. And obviously, we're only going to be able to look at a few of them 
Um, and the ones that we're not looking at, we're we're binning them for because we're part of a sinister conspiracy. Yeah, theory. We it's a plot. We say what happened. Yes, it's a plot. <laughs> it's a plot. So, um, okay. So the first one is from Bill Jones, um, and I think it's actually, in a way, it's it's the historically the darkest and most significant conspiracy theory of the lot, the one that, that, that just refuses to die. Bill James writes, a long strand of anti-Semitism in past and present conspiracy theories, blood libel, protocols of the elders of Zion, Dreyfus, linkages to historical plagues, COVID mad stuff about Soros, it goes on and on. Um, that is mournfully true, is it not, Dominic? Yeah, it's the ultimate conspiracy theory, isn't it? It's the sort of er conspiracy theory, although I think it's changed over time. So medieval anti-Semitism um, and that sort of blood libel and stuff, it didn't quite have the element that it has had since the late 19th century and particularly the 20th century, which is the idea that... So the Jews went from being, as it were, bottom dog to top dog in the sort of... in the, the demonology. So they were outsiders, obviously, in you know, medieval period when they suffered pogroms or whatever. But in the 20th century, you know, obviously the classic Nazi conspiracy theory is that the Jews are not outsiders. They are the ultimate insiders who are, you know, controlling the media and finance and big business and all this kind of thing. And they've orchestrated the stab in the back and all the rest of it. So anti-Semitism has been, has adapted over time. And that's one reason it's been so successful, sad to say. And it, and it, as we see it, it hasn't gone away. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. I remember about 20 years ago, somebody saying to me um, about anti-Semitism in Britain, about a book they were, they were, my agent said he was representing a, a guy called Anthony Julius who had written this big book about anti-Semitism in Britain. And he'd had meetings with publishers at which publishers had said, well, there is no anti-Semitism in Britain. So why publish this book on something that doesn't exist? And at the time I thought, you know what, there probably isn't really much anti-Semitism in Britain. I mean, how wrong... Could I have been? You know, I would never have anticipated the resurgence yeah, in the last <laughs> 10 years or so. It's unbelievably depressing. It's kind of like a hydra. And I wonder actually whether um, one, one of the things that Jews historically, the role that they've played is to offer a kind of, a, a bit like with the Catholic Church, a, a grotesque parody of the control of, of where power authentically is. So the blood mm. libel, the idea that um, Jews are seizing Christian children and um, murdering them and mixing their blood up for a kind of grotesque parody of the mass, yeah, is is obviously in a way a kind of commentary on on the power of the, the church, which is you know, the, the dominant institution in the Middle Ages. And in a way, there is a kind of similar way that that in the in the late nineteenth century into the twentieth century, and you know, still in the twenty first century. The idea that Jews control international finance is in a way a commentary about people's anxieties about finance. Yeah. It's, 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 it's the anxiety that um, we are controlled by terrifying screens of figures that we don't understand, by algorithms, by yeah. vast anonymous institutions. And in a way, if we can associate that with, um, you know, with Jews or with whoever... You know, we can put a face to these blank screens. Then, in a way, we're kind of humanising it. Right, exactly. And I think that's why. I mean, that's obviously one of the reasons that anti-Semitism was so successful in Germany after the First World War. Is that if you're, you know, a, a, let's say a lower middle class German who maybe owns a small shop or something, you have seen your world 
destroyed by the First World War, by the revolution at the end of the war, the hyperinflation of the 1920s, then the shock of the Great Depression. These massive forces, global forces that you don't really understand and can't control. And, you know, anti-Semitism gives you a way of making sense of that. And it gives you scapegoats, which is what people always want in, you know, that will never die, the search for scapegoats. And the Jews are the oldest and most sort of persistent scapegoat of all. And so there is a case for describing Nazism as a kind of conspiracy theory that takes power and weaponizes itself. Yeah, absolutely. So I think Nazism, I mean, you read Mein Kampf, Mein Kampf is a massive conspiracy theory, isn't it? And and the, the appeal of Nazism, which is that, you know, Germany has been betrayed, that it has been undermined from within. I mean, it, it is a colossal conspiracy theory. And, it, and that's probably why it's bred so many conspiracy theories, why you have people who believed that, you know, Rudolf Hess was flying to, to Britain as a secret mission to make peace, uh, authorised by Hitler, or that Hitler survived the bunker, or that Angela Merkel is Hitler's descendant and plotting to bring about a Fourth Reich. I mean, those things have, have grown in very fertile soil because Nazism was a conspiracy theory, as a lot of very passionate, slightly extreme, or slightly extreme, very extreme political movements are. I think there's always, as we said before, there's always that that danger with any form of politics that it turns into conspiracy theory. Right. And and that's true of kind of liberal centrism as well, isn't it? The the, the nervousness that, that Nazis are kind of lurking in the in the wings yeah. waiting to take over. I mean that's also an expression of the, the paranoid style, isn't it? I think it I think it is actually. I think I don't think there's any area of politics that is immune from that kind of paranoid style. I mean how often you know, how often have you been in a conversation where somebody has said to you the election was rigged, the election was stolen, the Tories or Labour or whoever it might be um, have and their powerful friends in the media are lying to the public and brainwashing the public. I mean, you'll hear that, you know, if you have conversations about politics, you will hear that week in, week out, and it, and it never goes away. Right, Tom, let's move on before we um, betray our listeners completely to Ollie Simpson. Ollie Simpson says, Titus Oates claimed Mary of Modena's secretary, that's the, um, Mary of Modena was the wife of James, the future James II, uh, Oates claimed her secretary was in cahoots with the French Jesuits. He was spouting BS off the top of his head, but was right. Well, this is true. So Oates did get some things right. And that's often the way with conspiracy theories, is that there, there, there are grains of truth. There are sort of little elements that they do get right and that seem to then suggest that everything else is right. And I think that's the interesting thing, that if you argue with a conspiracy theorist, by definition, because they're obsessive, they will know more about the subject than you will. And they'll always sort of run rings around you and say, ah, but look at this, look at that, look at the other. Um, but obviously for Oates, this was, you know, this was a gift, basically. The one, one of his guesses turned out to be, turned out to be correct. And, and the Jesuits, I suppose, were, I mean, plotting against England in a way. I mean, you know, there were plots against the life of Elizabeth I and um, well, James I and so on. Maybe um, for a conspiracy theory to kind of go viral, as it were, and actually have a measurable impact on the politics of the day, it, do, it does need that leavening of fact. Uh, yeah. I mean, there, there, there is no evidence at all that um, the royal family are lizards, for instance. And so that's why it, it just remains a kind of it's yeah. something that people laugh at. Whereas the idea that um, the Russians influenced the Brexit vote, there's enough, yes. there's enough evidence for that, that it, it's actually had kind of, Political yeah. traction and therefore uh, a measurable political impact on on discourse 
Or the JFK. This would be an example of it, yes. No, the JFK assassination, you know, the CIA did have assassination plots, not against American presidents, but against foreign leaders. So, you know, it's not... Also, Oswald was in... He was in Russia. I mean, that is quite odd, isn't it? I mean, I I know that you discounted it with your rabid (laughs) scepticism, but, I mean, that is quite odd. Yeah. And, of course, you know, um, all these things... Any, it's like any political narrative. A political narrative only takes hold if if people can recognise something's in it. And and the Popish plot, say, would not have taken hold unless there was some element yeah. of truth that there were Catholic powers that didn't like England and there were people in the Catholic yeah. Church who wanted to re-Catholicise England and all the rest of it. Against that, we we must say that there are certain conspiracy theories that are clearly not true but develop because people have a stake in them. And we, we come back to the blood libel with um, one from Daniel Pearl, who talks about William of Norwich and the blood libel, an evil conspiracy theory that still affects people to this day through Chaucer, etc. So the monk in his tale talks about it. Um, now, William of Norwich, this is the origins of the blood libel. And he is um, a, a young boy who vanishes in a wood outside Norwich in 1144, and then he gets hyped up as a martyr, someone who's been murdered by the Jews as, as a Christian. And the thing that's interesting about this, clearly it's not true. He wasn't murdered. The Jews were not interested in uh, using his blood or anything like that. Um, but it gets hyped up because there is um, a need in Norwich Cathedral for a martyr or a saint, and they don't really have one. And so this guy, um, Thomas of Monmouth, who essentially writes the hagiography of William of Norwich. He has a huge stake. I mean, he's interested in, in doing it because this will then provide for pilgrims coming to the, the, the shrine of the, of, the, of the murdered saint. Um, and that is also a crucial part of conspiracy theories, isn't it? That they, they take off when they fill maybe uh, yeah. people's needs. It's, you know, you've got a gap, you need to fill it with something. And this but- is the most baneful example of the lot because in a way, I mean, this is kind of the most shameful English invention. Um, it, it, it begins with William of Norwich and then it gets kind of turbocharged with, the, with Hugh of Lincoln, who's this, again this little boy who's, who, who, who vanishes and supposedly is murdered um, a, a century later. And it, it's kind of the most shameful English invention of all time. Wow, that's a big claim. But Tom, you know yeah, what? It's it such an interesting thing there is that conspiracy, which I hadn't thought of until you just mentioned this about um, Norwich needing a needing a martyr conspiracy theories are lucrative i mean the jfk conspiracy theory has generated so much income for so many writers and indeed you know oliver stone in his film um yeah that conspiracy theories are an industry in and of themselves i mean they they generate they literally generate merchandise uh, and that's an interesting element to it now let's move on to the next one because i think there's a couple of things i want to say about this it's from a, a fellow called michael taylor who has written a book called The Interest, which is all about um, the defence of slavery. So there, he's he's actually, although he doesn't mention this in his tweet, he's written a book about a network that did exist, a network of slave owners who, who are a network of slave owners who place articles in magazines like The Spectator and do influence votes in the House of Commons. He doesn't call them a conspiracy. I mean, he calls them a lobby. And his book is actually a model of how to write about a network without succumbing to conspiracy theory but anyway he says the illuminati so this is a sort of slightly freemasons-ish group um uh very popular in germany 
And he says, Conservatives in England in the 1790s were convinced they caused the French Revolution when behind the 1798 Irish Rebellion. We even stopped reading Kant for five years, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, because he was suspected of being one. In brackets, he says, I have published on all this. <laughs> um, <laughs> and actually, it's not just the Illuminati that people blame. It's also the Freemasons. There's a huge thing of people blaming the French Revolution on the Freemasons. And again, there's a slight element of truth in it, in that the Masons, the Illuminati, and people like that were kind of progressive. That They were the kind of high-minded secularists of their day. And some of them did play roles in these events. And And then the whole apparatus of kind of conspiracy theories cranked up around particularly the Masons, why the Masons, Freemasonry was banned, for example, in Franco Spain, because they were seen as plotting against the Catholic Church and the established order and, and all the rest of it. Um, and even now, of course, you know, anti-Masonic conspiracy theories are incredibly popular, aren't they? Yes, and I think, um, I mean, the French Revolution is such a kind of e- explosion. It's such a kind of a, a shock to the system. I guess particularly in England, where you've got all the, the aristocrats fleeing there. I just before Christmas, I read um, Tale of Two Cities for the first time since oh, school. Yeah. What What was really interesting about that was that Dickens explains the, the coming of the French Revolution as a cons- kind of conspiracy. So he he casts um, people in the slums of Paris as preparing uh, the French Revolution, and it's like they know exactly what is going to happen. And so obviously Dickens is kind of projecting his own knowledge of what's going to happen onto these supposed conspirators. But it kind of answers a need that um, when some, when an event happens that is so unexpected, so seemingly extraordinary, in a way, the idea that there are a bunch of, of conspirators, be it in a, a, a French wine shop in Paris or in a salon uh, in Vienna or whatever, it cuts through a lot of the need to explain yeah. it. You know, people write entire books about what caused the French Revolution. But if you can say, well, it was all organised by the Illuminati, that makes it a lot simpler, much yeah. easier to get a handle on. And you know, another great example of that, Tom, if you ever read any of those um, books published in the 1920s by people like Agatha Christie or the Bulldog Drummond books, there's often scenes in them where there's a group of people who are meeting in a shadowy room somewhere and they're a kind of Jewish financier an American yeah. businessman, a communist, and somebody else. And they talk about how they brought about the First World War, the Russian Revolution, all these cataclysms. Uh, and it's exactly the same thing that you get with the, with the French Revolution, this search for the network that will explain this seismic you know, geopolitical convulsion. I don't know if you remember the opening to the film Naked Gun. Fidel Castro and the Ayatollah and they're all kind of gathered around a table, clearly yeah. plotting the overthrow of yeah. American civilization. And Leslie Nelson bursts Well, this in is the sort of uh... spectral organisation in James Bond, isn't it? That's what yes. the James Bond yes. spectral... They have representatives yes. in every country. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Um, here's one from Thoughtfully Catholic, uh, who is indeed a very thoughtful Catholic. Um, and he has a clearly mad theory. There's a theory that the Vatican conspired to create Islam through the medium of Khadija, the Catholic first wife of the founder of Islam, all of which is clearly is that, rubbish. That's and not I true, don't know. I, no, that's of course not true. Of course it's not, not remotely true. Um, although, um, I don't want to get us into to too much trouble here, but yeah. the, um, the beginnings of, of Islam... Um, I was just about to say, yeah. There is a conspiracy theory about that, right? Well, it's not really a conspiracy, it's an academic theory. Where does it come from? Um, 
can we trust the um, the uh, the Muslim sources for it? Um, maybe the Muslim sources are themselves, in a way, um, a, a kind of, um, if not a conspiracy theory, an attempt to explain something that happened in a way that makes sense for people by the time they're writing about it. But I won't go into that because I've written entire book on that, and yeah. it has Good the scope book. to generate all kinds of um, of blowback. So let's uh, leave that one. Let's park Let, that one. And, let's do a. Oh, let's move do a on same. to yeah, yeah. So Pat Roberts Roberts has basically pointed us to the theory, um, which I hadn't heard before, the theory that Finland doesn't exist, that Finland is a a myth. Uh, Apologies to our Finnish listeners, but you are part of the, you're obviously actors. um, All listeners. Playing playing the part of, um, yeah, playing the part of Finns. That Finland doesn't exist, that the space where Finland is purports to be is actually... A giant fishing ground, is that right, Tom? The giant fishing ground for the Norwegians? Yes, for Japanese, the... for Japanese, yeah. um, Japanese fishermen. It's, it's a, I think it's a Russian, okay. uh, Japanese conspiracy. And this originated kind of three years ago, four years ago. And um, yeah, kind of taken off in the, the darker reaches of the internet. <laughs> and I guess it's kind of fun. I mean, actually, it would be quite fun to just come up with a really insane conspiracy theory and see how long it takes to get traction. And I guess, that, again, that's the plot of Foucault's Pendulum. Um, Alberto yeah. Echo would, you know, I mean, he was essentially writing before the internet. And, and obviously the internet is completely turbocharged. But it's also the theory. plot of um, Aman and Havana. So yes. in, in Graham Greene's novel, the agent basically invents it to justify his fee. <laughs> Same yes. as the Taylor of Panama, <laughs> John Carey's take on it later on. The agent basically invents a, a conspiracy where none exists, which then uh, comes true. Yeah, so it's Albigensian crusade territory. Yeah. But I mean, I think the thing about the the Finland one is, is that it was clearly, I I mean, I imagine it must have been invented as a A joke, as a joke. Uh, And as these jokes tend to, it seems to have slightly run out of control. It's got legs. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, well, uh, now we come, we come to um, uh, a tweet that just has so many conspiracy theories in it. And tellingly, it's from someone called Nemo. So wow, that's uh, sinister. So who knows yeah. who this could be? I mean, it might be Prince Philip. It might be the CIA. Yeah. Who, who knows who it might be? Anyway, he's the faked moon landing. Prince Philip killed Diana. The US government assassinated John Lennon. The CIA killed Bob Marley. Well, we've, which we've, of these is the maddest? Why would the CIA kill Bob Marley? Don't know. I'm not familiar with that one. Why would the uh, Reagan government assassinate John Lennon? I guess it's not the Reagan government, is it? It's Jimmy Carter. It's the Jimmy Carter. It's the Carter. Jimmy Carter, Mr. Human Rights. Can you see him signing that off? Is, that the, is there not a link between Mark David Chapman killing John Lennon and whoever it was that then shot Reagan? Hinckley. John Hinckley. Hinckley. That Hinckley was inspired by Chapman shooting. Uh, um, I don't know whether he was inspired by Mark Chapman. He was definitely inspired by the film Taxi Driver. Um, yeah. in which which has the um, uh, Robert De Niro, Travis Bickle um, I, I, character. I think he, I think he was because it was only a few. It was kind of a couple of months, two or three months right. after John Lennon was I mean, shot. What is certainly true is that there is a um, there is a personality type. You know, there are people who um, feel you know victimised and they're outsiders and all the rest of it. And they are often it's it's often the case that people who've assassinated American political figures will have had scrapbooks or something of previous assassins and they want to be as famous as Lee Harvey Oswald or the guy who shot George Wallace or the guy who shot Robert Kennedy or, you know, that this is a sort of pattern that they then, they then want to live up to themselves. 
I mean, there are two. Th- th- there's a, a much better Beatles conspiracy, of course, which is, well, is Paul, Paul McCartney never died. Uh, Paul McCartney died in 1966. Yeah, Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney died in 1966, got replaced, and this replacement amazingly was able to write Hey Jude. Yeah. <laughs> Let it be. I know that that conspiracy is not true because Paul McCartney once saw me um, uh, shouting at my son when he was small for throwing gravel. This was my counter. This was my real brush for greatness. Yeah, of course. You'd, yeah, you'd say that, Dominic. Of course you'd say that. I, d- I, do that, I do that thing that you should never do as a parent, which is basically really lose it in, in public in a, <laughs> over the, the, what appears to be the smallest thing, but is actually unknown to the rest of everybody who's watching, <laughs> the thousandth in a series of incidents. <laughs> I've told you a thousand times about throwing gravel, stop throwing gravel, and I looked up and there was Paul McCartney who gave me this sort of, <laughs> this sort of avuncular wink and then moved on. <laughs> you didn't do a thought, thumbs up. No, but I thought, you know, this isn't how it was meant to go. My meeting with Paul McCartney, come on. <laughs> but, but the other, the other um, one that kind of, re- every time there is a mention, um, every time some famous star gets killed or dies, so Elvis is the classic, but it's been yeah. said of John Lennon as well, it's been said of Bob Marley, it's been said of uh, Jim Morrison, um, I guess it's been said of Marilyn as well. Did they really die? Are they, yeah. are they all so that's, somewhere? That's because they're, is that because they're kind of saints? Uh, to their followers and their followers can't believe that they could ever die i, I mean what's all that about yeah something like that i don't know i don't know but it's it's a kind of interesting meme that um and there's also this weird thing isn't there that the gov- u.s government is is always the the perpetrator that the u.s government is staffed by people who hate rock and roll and even now you know 50 or 60 years on have never come to terms with bill haley and the comets and are determined well... to wipe out a succession of big stars yeah, I mean, the, the Elvis one, I guess, isn't. I guess because Elvis becomes a... He, he gets a badge from Nixon, doesn't he? He is. Um, Great pals with Nixon. So maybe there's a sense that Elvis vanishes because actually he's working for the American government. But clearly with John <laughs> Lennon, because the, the American government wanted to deport him. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure that's what feeds into that. Um, the, the, the idea that uh, the Ameri- people in the CIA had a, a kind of desire to get rid of him. And, and essentially that's what then feeds into the X-Files. Um, yeah, but the X Files obviously you know, builds on all this sort of stuff, doesn't all it? that kind of stuff, and it also has aliens and things. So I reckon of those, I reckon the most plausible Prince Philip killed Dan. I don't think Prince Philip, <laughs> but uh, of said. all of those, of all, Tom of those. destroys his credibility. <laughs> Tom believes that Prince Philip killed Diana. You've heard it here I, first. Just for the just for the record, I don't think Prince Philip killed Diana. But um, of all of those, I think the the Diana death is kind of the one that perhaps... I'd be interested to see how they play that on the crown. Oh, God almighty, don't go there. <laughs> don't go but you, Dominic, as an expert, uh, yeah. I'll look forward to your thoughts And as such a huge fan of the crown, as is well known. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, that is all we've got time for today. Uh, Dominic and I are both due in Moscow this afternoon. Um, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please do rate and review us, although obviously only if you like it. Till next time, bye. Watch out for the lizards. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. 
I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast Walking the Dog where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond and you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland and yes I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount in fact there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.